Section 20 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Charles and Clarendon, Part 6. The peculiarity of Clarendon's personal relations to the king must not be forgotten. Charles had grown up under his governance. He had been tutored by him in England twenty years before lectured and controlled by him in exile, and Clarendon could not throw off the domini merely because his pupil was king. Charles himself declared that his Lord Chancellor would barely let him speak in council, now any more than when he was a boy at Bristol, and he was certainly kept to his work with scant ceremony. One of the notes which passed between the two at council runs thus, I doubt you do not think enough of the business of Scotland another when charles wants his dinner this debate is worth three dinners i beseech you be not weary of it but attend it with all patience will your majesty never put an end to this business the business will not do itself and so forth clarendon remonstrated boldly with charles on the license of his life and took whatever line he thought right without much reference to his wishes Instead of waiting upon the king, he made the king trot every day to him, although he was well enough to visit his cousin. For a long time Charles took it all good-humouredly enough. When he was told by Lord Gerard that Clarendon had said openly that he was a lazy person and not fit to govern, he laughingly replied that that was no news, for he hath told me so twenty times, and but the other day he told me so but at length he grew annoyed at hearing on every side that so long as his minister was in power he was but half a king the situation and clarendon grew tiresome and to be tiresome could have but one ending with charles the truth is he wrote to ormond who on hearing of the king's intention to dismiss his old comrade dispatched from ireland a very beautiful letter of remonstrance his behaviour and humour were grown so insupportable to myself and all the world else that i could no longer endure it and it was impossible for me to live with it when to all this it is added that clarendon opposed him directly in many matters upon which his mind was bent and that in especial the king believed him to have been the author of the marriage of francis stuart which robbed him of a much desired accession to his establishment there were reasons enough and to spare for a Stuart and a bourbon to show a want of generous feeling which was a flower that did never grow naturally in the heart of either of the families finally and this was with charles throughout life the most potent argument it was easier in the presence of popular clamour to abandon than to support him on august thirtieth sixteen sixty seven orders were sent to him ill as he then was and mourning the death of his wife to deliver up the great seal three days before this when he had had his last interview with the king lady castlemaine had sprung from her bed and run out in her smock into her aviary looking over whitehall gardens where she stood blessing herself at the old man's going away as soon as secretary morris brought the great seal from my lord chancellor bab may fell upon his knees and catched the king about the legs and joyed him 
and said that this was the first time that ever he could call him king of england so it was that strong in the gratified hate of a harlot and unshamed by the congratulations of a pimp charles abandoned the wise old man to whom he owed his throne did he remember his father's last injunction never to give way to the punishment of any for their faithful service to the crown upon whatsoever pretense or for whatsoever cause whether it were so or not he seems to have heartily enjoyed jacob hall's robe dancing on that day unconscious that he was watching a rival in the affections of the mistress en titre it may well be doubted whether had neither parliament attacked nor charles betrayed him clarendon could have long maintained his position he did not instinctively feel and therefore could not guide as pym had guided and shaftesbury was to some extent to guide the desires of his generation his essentially negative views had not stood in the way had rather been advantageous at the restoration itself but when his task of restoring the parliamentary monarchy in strict alliance with the old anglican church had been completed the weakness of a position based upon negations showed itself he had neither the keenness to discern a coming change nor the elasticity of mind to adapt himself to it when it came had it been otherwise he might have died prime minister for no one contested his usefulness but then he would not have written the great epic of the rebellion the treaty of breda we have said had left behind it hatred and mistrust but hatred and mistrust yield to a common danger even before peace was made louis the fourteenth had begun his war of aggression upon the spanish low countries which he claimed in right of his wife giving out that he was going to travel in her inheritance he suddenly crossed the frontier and in less than two months was master of all the southern towns to both english and dutch the prospect was full of alarm and it was this alarm and all the accretions of distrust which charles's conduct allowed to gather round it which formed the key to the events of the next ten years flanders had for centuries been connected by the closest commercial bonds with england and it was indeed regarded as a kind of continental annex while the dutch dreaded to see themselves become a maritime province of france even as faint-hearted englishmen a century ago dreaded to see england it happened that at this moment the english resident in brussels was sir william temple the most cultured of our public servants whose dispatches and memoirs can still be read with the fullest pleasure for their vivacity and literary grace a keen opponent of french aggression he had anticipated the action of louis and had already sketched the plan of a close alliance between england and the republic which should compel that monarch to hold his hand john de witt acting in accord with temple now approached charles with such an agreement in view while louis strained every nerve to secure the king's neutrality or active help rouvigny a personal friend of clarendon was sent hastily to england with ample funds to enforce his arguments and with instructions to offer to charles himself the promise of french help against his own subjects before he reached london clarendon had fallen and he had to deal with buckingham and arlington 
who were attempting to fill the vacant place. It is interesting to watch Charles in his first serious essay in foreign politics. He received Rouvigny with perfect frankness, and expressed the warmest personal regard for Louis, but declared that Parliament would never assent to an alliance with France under such circumstances. Nevertheless, he made it clear that this did not close matters on his own part. Concealing the active negotiations which were at the moment going on with de Witt, he hinted that a large supply of ready money, a part of the French conquests in the Low Countries, and important commercial concessions might move him in the required direction. Louis at once instructed Rouvigny to promise the money, increased facilities for trade with France and the Low Countries, and assistance in ships and supplies wherewith to conquer the Spanish possessions in the West Indies. The contest between France and the Republic for Charles's alliance was accentuated by the personal rivalry of Buckingham and Arlington. Buckingham was on the whole the most worthless of all the men who claim attention in this reign. His person was extremely graceful, Rears beheld him to be the finest gentleman in the land, and he was naturally quick of understanding. He was for a time probably the richest subject of the king. He had a sort of insolent ease of speech, was regarded by his dependents as a wit, and had attained considerable power of mimicry, the lowest form of intellectual exercise, and there panegyric must cease. He was essentially a trifler, heeding nothing but the fancy of the moment, and so inordinately vain and selfish, that he was at once the easiest and the most satisfactory of dupes. His profligacy was such as to give him an evil preeminence even in the court of Charles. His outrages upon religion were of vulgar indecency, while to men of honor and steadfastness he was the object of alternate contempt and distrust, which he repaid as best he could by insolent ridicule or dishonorable intrigue. He could not even claim that which in popular esteem will always cover a multitude of vices, a reputation for personal courage. The story of his life does not record a single honorable action, and Charles rated him at his real worth. He drank with him and drabbed with him, but he never gave him office or command of any moment, and he duped him relentlessly when he essayed to be a politician. At the present moment Buckingham was wholly in the French interest, for his whim at the time was the command of an English contingent in the service of Louis. In this he was steadily opposed by Arlington, who, unscrupulous as he was, a fourbe in politics, had acquired the principal direction of foreign affairs by his evident capacity for business and coolness of judgment, and by the fact that he alone among Charles's ministers was able to converse easily with the foreign ambassadors in their own tongues. Arlington perfectly understood the temper of the English people, did not play entirely for his own hand, and having married a lady from Holland, was inclined to the Dutch rather than the French connection. The opportunity which was now offered of thwarting Buckingham drew him in the same direction. While therefore engaged in apparent concert with his foolish rival, in preliminaries with Rouvigny, he busied himself with Charles's sanction, but without Buckingham's knowledge, in direct negotiations with de Witt. At the same time, 
a lively illustration of diplomatic honour, Charles was offering to Spain also his act of alliance. His terms were, as always, ready money and commercial privileges. The poverty and the pride of Spain forbade their acceptance. The choice, therefore, lay between France and the Republic, and in the face of the rising clamour of Parliament, the policy of the line of least resistance claimed its votary. Early in January 1668, Temple was sent in haste to The Hague. Charles threw himself into the matter with zeal, even to the correcting of the wording of Temple's dispatches, for the undecency of the word force I would willingly have left it out, he writes in the margin of one. And by January 13th, Temple had finished a brilliant piece of diplomatic work by the Triple Alliance, so-called from the later accession of Sweden. England and the Republic bound themselves to assist each other, if attacked in Europe with specified forces, to restore peace between France and Spain upon clearly expressed conditions, and finally to compel both parties, if necessary, to make peace. This last provision was kept secret. If France were recalcitrant, the war upon her should not cease until she had been reduced to the limits imposed by the peace of the Pyrenees. The Triple Alliance was the first formal expression of European resistance to the aggressions of Louis. But on the part of Charles himself, it was a piece of gross political knavery surpassed only by what shortly followed. His hopes were in reality fixed upon France. On the very day upon which the treaties were signed, he wrote both to his sister and to Louis himself, pointing out that the effect of it is to bring Spain to consent to the peace, so as I have done nothing to prejudice France in this agreement, emphasizing his desire to execute it with every possible regard to your satisfaction, and explaining his action as forced upon him by his subjects. The secret article, of course, he carefully concealed for the time. But by this secret article, whenever he thought fit to disclose it, he knew that he had fatally compromised the Dutch before Louis, and had thus secured their isolation when he should himself desire to attack them again. That this was no distant prospect is seen from the exclamations of the fiery Clifford, who was in his confidence. On the very day when London was blazing with bonfires for the conclusion of the Peace of Breda, Clifford was heard to declare that for all the rejoicing there must soon be another war. Louis bowed before the Triple Alliance, and the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle was concluded at the end of May 1668. Temple had no hope in the permanence of a peace which both France and Spain come to so unwillingly, and which both England and Holland promote upon conditions which both dislike. Even before it was ratified, the disintegrating forces were at work. It was not likely that Louis would contentedly accept his rebuff at the hands of the Dutch. As Republicans, as traitors, and as Protestants, they were the objects of his haughty contempt. The arrogance of speech in which they were unwisely indulging, their fanfaronade de pêcheur, the medal in which France was represented as the sun stayed in his course by the Republic, these and other grievances so rankled in his mind that he never, he says, entered his council without thinking how he might make them pay dearly for the great role they had assumed. But before attacking, 
he set himself to remove from them all possible sources of support, to destroy the coalition limb by limb, and he began with England. Since stinking Dutchman was the best appellation that Charles could find for his friends, success did not seem improbable. The ties which bound him to France, his French blood, his love for his sister, his admiration for Louis the Fourteenth and the system of personal rule which he had inaugurated, no less than his desire to be revenged for the Chatham disaster and the caricatures, all tended in the same direction. He had already betrayed his nominal allies to Louis by informing him of the secret article. Charles had shown that he intended, in pale imitation of Louis, to be his own foreign minister. He now made this clearer. Buckingham might be allowed to play at statesmanship and to believe himself the confidant of Charles, Louis, and Henrietta of Orléans. Arlington needed humouring, for he had openly expressed the opinion that Louis's wings must be clipped. He was a useful secretary and could be trusted to conduct formal negotiations with ability. But neither of them had any real influence of a direct kind. One thing, wrote Charles to his sister, I desire you to take as much as you can out of the King of France's head, that my ministers are anything but what I will have them. And a little later, whatsoever opinion my ministers had been of, I would and do always follow my own judgment, and if they take any other measures than that they will see themselves mistaken in the end. They were used, tricked, allowed to trick one another, and repudiated, as was most convenient, and Charles enjoyed no part of the business more. It would be a grave mistake to regard the king in what followed as making a surrender of himself to Louis. He was, for the time, master of his own game, and he exacted his own terms. But the game was not an easy one to play. He was to break off an alliance upon which his people were earnestly bent. He was to enter into fellowship with the representative of European aggression and Catholic despotism, and these were what his people most dreaded. Scarcely a week had passed after the signature of the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle, before Charles signified his wish for a strict union with France and asked to be met halfway. The guarded reply of Louis called forth his private assurance through Rouvigny that he would willingly make treaty with you as between gentlemen and gentlemen, and that he preferred your word to all the parchment in the world. But Charles made two conditions, one of his own, that he should be assisted, since his people thought differently from himself, the other suggested by Arlington, that Louis must speak first, because if he made proposals and they were not accepted, but became known to the Hollanders, he would suffer. Louis accepted the situation without demur, and replaced the Protestant Rouvigny by the more wily Colbert de Coissy, a Catholic, without, however, letting the new ambassador know the length and breadth of his designs. At Colbert's first audience, Charles told him plainly that he himself was the only man in his dominions who wanted the French alliance, and that there were two difficulties in the way. France had been developing her trade and increasing her navy. This must stop. Trade was the idol of England, and sea power her only effective claim to consideration. These interests, at any rate the second, must be secured, if dealings were to proceed. 
more than once he held the same language. The only thing which can give any impediment is the matter of the sea, which is so essential a point to us here, as in union upon any other security can never be lasting. Nor can I be answerable to my kingdoms, if I should enter into an alliance wherein their present and future security were not fully provided for. The second obstacle he mentioned with his tongue in his cheek. The other difficulty is the treaties I am entered into of late, which I am sure the king, my brother, would not have me violate upon any terms, since he has given me the good example of being a martyr to his words. End of section 20